Captain Wentworth had had enough. It had been eight years, and he still loved Anne Elliot. She had rejected him before, of course, when her family was convinced he had no prospects. But Wentworth could no longer refrain. The pen did his heart's speaking. I can listen no longer in silence. I must speak to you by such means as are within my reach. You pierce my soul. I am half agony, half hope. I had not waited even these ten days could I have read your feelings, as I think you must have penetrated mine. I can hardly write. When Anne receives the letter, she ignores the expectations of a proper lady. She tears it open, and then Jane Austen would write, Her eyes devour the following words. Now, some literary scholars have argued that the next few lines are some of Austen's most romantic. But they're wrong. Because Captain Wentworth was not being romantic. He was just an addict. Welcome to Microbehaviors, a different kind of podcast that uses stories from the past to help you apply the latest behavioral research. In each episode, you'll get one small action that you can do today so you flourish at work, home, and in your relationships. I'm Andrew Webb. This is Microbehaviors. Let's get to it. When Captain Wentworth said he can listen no longer in silence, he's not kidding. He's actually speaking for a growing culture that will increasingly rely on letters. They wanted more of them. A lot more. Before 1840, the Postal Service was expensive. Too expensive even for much of the upper class. Not to mention the receiver was often stuck paying the bill because... If you paid in advance, you offended their English sensibilities. It was also wildly inconsistent. Posts were charged by the page, and many postal workers relied on, well, shall we say, an inexact method by holding the letter up to the candlelight to determine the total number of sheets. And any good reader of Jane Austen knows that writers would fold their letters without an envelope and then seal it with wax. It sounds romantic today, but it was actually just another way to save money, not seal the deal. Queen Victoria would eventually get a good pulse on her people, and she started changing things by reforming the penny post. And then suddenly, the queen's head was on the penny black stamp, the first adhesive sticker, which was another way to speed up the bandwidth and built a vast communication network. It may seem trivial today, but innovations like a postage stamp and prepaid postcards democratized letters. Overnight, the world seemed smaller, more intimate. It's that same intimacy that we revere so much in Jane Austen. But historian Kate Thomas was willing to ask a question that doesn't feel so romantic, and it's absolutely applicable to us today. What happens when a post bag bulges with the communication of all sorts? Communication unified by the engines of the National Post Office? The answer? 
is that it produces commutable relations and intimate strangers. Intimate strangers? Seen in this light, Captain Wentworth's demand to speak to Anne by such means as are within my reach seem far less romantic. Now, I am taking the cynic's approach to Jane Austen, and I know I'm sleeping on the couch for it, but Captain Wentworth doesn't want Anne's affection. Not really. They're intimate strangers, and the guy just wants somebody to respond to his dang text, email, or DM. He wants more of the good stuff. Information. He doesn't really care what she says, so long as she does it post-haste. And may I just say, he's not alone. That is us. That's Instagram. That's the new social dynamic. The relationships are just another transaction of information. We're looking at quantity of friends, not quality. The Victorians faced what we face now, information inflation, when the value of the content became far less meaningful. In fact, the access to information became more important than the information itself. The Victorians were so obsessed with their letters that they demanded the mail as much as 12 times a day. It was as if they were complaining about the Wi-Fi speeds at Starbucks. The ink meant that somebody out there, they just acknowledged their existence. The content took a back seat. It was the like button of the 1880s. More often than not, the writer would end their letters with return of post, which really meant I better hear from you within the hour. If you look at some old records of the London Post Office, they often received angry complaints from Londoners who did not get their letters within a couple of hours. But the influx of letters meant something we've all seen, an increase of scams, advertisements, and even Victorian junk mail. It turns out the Victorians might have understood our day far better than we thought. There is a small part of one of T.S. Eliot's poems that has become a continual guide for me. It's, it's a taxonomy, really, about the world of information and data and even wisdom. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? That is a good question, and it's worth reflecting on. What information do you value most? What relationships? How can you demonstrate that you truly value them? Each of us are adrift in the informational ocean. We're parched, dehydrated, looking for anything to satiate the thirst. You might even call it the Wentworth curse. And what do we do? We, we keep drinking the salt water. We gulp it down feverishly. There's endless water around us, so why not? What our bodies, though, our minds, our relationships really need is to stop just for a second and take a few sips of clean, natural water. The good stuff that sustains our relationships, that builds wisdom, 
that does precisely what T.S. Eliot is asking of us. It provides the life we have lost in living. Not long ago, I was obsessed with this concept. Okay, I probably still am, but it impacted all the articles I looked for or the books I read. And there was a common pattern. Everyone's perception around information inflation, as I call it, or information overload, all had a doom and gloom feeling with very few practical answers for our day. It's pretty rattling to be stuck on that raft having everyone else saying, we need to drink clean water, we're going to die without it. And it seemed that nobody could provide the answer on how to get it. But then, then I found some research that it became a catalyst for me. Just listen to the title, Making Experience Count, the Role of Reflection in Personal Learning. I mean, that title alone is worth a few sweet, clean gulps. Here's the gist. Francesca Gino and her team at Harvard did a number of really creative experiments on how reflection can improve performance, well-being, productivity, all the good stuff. And one of them gave participants a math brain teaser, the kind of teaser that requires some serious executive thinking. After their first round, the researchers explained very clearly, before you start round two, you can choose what to do next. Option one, you can spend the next three minutes reflecting on what you learned and the strategies you used in the first round. Or option two, you can spend three minutes practicing another set of math puzzles. Please choose how you want to best prepare for round two. Now honestly ask yourself, what would you do? Reflect on what you learned or go back to the puzzles? Actually, the exact language was practice the same type of math puzzles as the one you solved in the first round. Translation, here's a big helping of some salt water. Drink up. Perhaps it's no surprise that 82% of the participants chose to go back to the puzzles without even considering what they had learned. No assessment of strategies or how the new knowledge could be applied. They missed out. The clean water was there for the taking. But those that did ask those kinds of reflective questions were incredibly more productive in the next round of teasers. And it only took three magic minutes. Which brings us to our microbehavior. Are you ready? Here it is. Schedule three magic minutes today after an important event and ask, what have I learned? You may have to set a reminder in your phone or create a calendar invite. Some of my friends have put it in the agenda for their meetings. The three magic minutes are a luxury of self-reflection. It's connecting all the dots that you've been collecting along the way. And then, hopefully, what you'll do differently as a result. What have I learned? Is something we always assume we're asking, but really, if you dig in, we never do. The key is that you give your best thinking to the stuff that matters and let the cluttered emails or social feeds, let them go every now and then. These three minutes are magic. 
because you imbue the information with meaning by giving it a revered space in your mind. It's a practice that perhaps our very own Captain Wentworth succumbed to. After the letters back and forth with Anne, the rejection of her family and the brutality of the Napoleonic Wars, he looked at himself and said, you know, I may have really botched this thing up. And so he begins his campaign to win Anne back, all while fighting off her other suitors. This sets up awkward encounters and heartwarming scenes that, let's be honest, nobody could write as well as Jane Austen. Eventually, the two agree. They've been silly, as they say. They must be married, even if Anne's older sister was against it from the beginning. I, too, have been thinking over the past, and a question has suggested itself. Whether there may not have been one person more my enemy even than that lady. My own self. To me, it looks like Wentworth finally spent some time asking the question. Three magic minutes can do wonders. It's a good thing, too, because no longer is he consumed with only getting the next letter, but rather how the information brings meaningful knowledge, as T.S. Eliot suggests. And from there, a fruitful life worth living with the woman he truly loved. And isn't that what we're all after? The life worth living? Well, we can get there three minutes at a time.